Well, I was given a letter last week, and I didn't read it last Sunday because Easter is usually, you know, kind of a busy day. Um, and, you know, it's also just there were a lot going on. So uh, I want to read it to you today. So uh, I think sometimes we underestimate how we serve in small ways the impact that actually has. And so today I'm going to read you a note that was given to Terry Luce. Uh, Terry and Rich and Jean and Bob and so many others work in the, our community garden, and I don't know what the numbers were last year. It was interesting, during the pandemic, the numbers were down of those who participated in the garden, which was a weird thought. We thought it would be the other way around, but um, somewhere between two and 3,000 people come through there every summer. And so I just wanted to read you this note that Terry was given. Terry, I hope you were able to see your wife by now. So if you didn't know, Terry's wife is in rehab facility right now and um, physically trying to get better, and so we're going to continue to pray for, for he and Kathy. But enclosed is a check for the garden for 2021. It's for $122. 100 is the amount from last year. The extra $22 is for my nephew who passed away on January 18th, 2021. Number 22 was his hockey number. He played for Mona Shores. At his funeral, we spoke about being a light to others. You and your garden team are for sure a light to others. Thank you for doing what you do. Be a light for Brennan. Blessings, Kevin. Now, I think sometimes we underestimate the impact we make when we do what seem like small things to us. Sometimes those have such a big impact for the sake of others. And so my challenge for us is this. Um, Sometimes our little acts of kindness have ripple effects beyond what we could ever imagine. They may inspire someone to something great. They may be, for us, acts of compassion that lead other people to serving in ways they never would have served before. And so here's my challenge. Let's ask the question with our lives, what can I do for the sake of others? Um, you know, there, there are some things, this is not, these are not my notes, but I'll get to my notes in a second. But um, the church has taken a black eye in some areas in the last year and a half, and rightfully so. But here's the other reality. For the first time, I don't know if you know that Barna Poll came out. Um, it's as reputable as research as you can find, probably in America. And for the first time in American history, less than half of people consider a church their home. It's also not surprising to me, if you've been paying attention in the last 15, 20 years, it doesn't surprise me. And what's interesting is the group that has left the church in the greatest percentage are people whose parents and grandparents are in the church. In record numbers. And what they're saying over and over again is what I see in my parents and grandparents, if that's what Christianity is, I want no part of it. They're not necessarily afraid of Jesus. They're just not sure the model of faith they're seeing they want to live into. And so my challenge for us today is let's be the kind of people that that's not true for our kids and grandkids. Let's make sure we're dying on the right hills, things that Jesus would actually give his life for, and let's make sure they're not for our political agendas or for all the other wrong reasons that we find ourselves fighting for things. Because it matters to to this generation, and it definitely matters to the next. Which leads me to to maybe my first quote of today that I'll I'll share. That um, I've heard this before, maybe you've said it, maybe I've said it. I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes. You said that before? I know no one in here has ever said that. I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes. Um, that's true for many of us when someone tells us something that we either don't like or haven't heard, and, and so we go, oh, I'll believe when I see it with my own eyes. Um, okay, fair, most of the time, right? And I, if I'm honest, I've got to be honest, I, 
I sometimes will do go research. I've heard some people say some things about the pandemic, and I go research, and, and they've been wrong a lot. Because <laughs> um, I want to know. And so my wife, it drives her nuts, because she'll say something, and she'll see me on my phone in the corner. Like, is this true or not? We're going to find out. And she looks at me, and she goes, don't answer. If I'm right or wrong, I don't want to know. I'm like, well, that's because you're not right. No, um... <laughs> Whoops. Um, I, I want to be right. Like I, I, and so I will not research just one. I will look in a bunch of different places because I think too many times, especially in these days, people bought into weird conspiracies and there's no real validity to it. And we'll use a YouTube video as their proof, which isn't proof, but like this is the kind of stuff we do in these days. And so I'm like, I want to be a person who, who knows what's actually true, not goes down rabbit holes. And so I was thinking how often we find ourselves wrestling with that. And here's why I think that's a problem for us. Um, Because what if they are right? Here's what I mean. Whether you find yourself in whichever realm of that might be, but, but what if someone else is right? It would change the perspective of what I think I know or I think I learned. What then? What if the thing that I've bought into, what if it's just not true? Or in fact, what if there's a greater truth? What if there's more to it? What, what if, and I'm really not thinking of any one particular thing, but, but I think about all the times, like I was thinking back in my life this week about, there's like a handful of times, like these little white lies I told as a kid, and I still remember them because they were so dumb, right? Like I was thinking about the little white lies I told a, a, a friend's dad, that my dad lost a cell phone in the snow. It wasn't true. Why would I tell that story? I don't know. You know, like, I'm just thinking about weird stories I told that were just not true. Or I remember incidents, right? Like, weird things that just stick out in your mind forever. Like, um, I thought I was being chivalrous in eighth grade, and I was, like, having pizza with this girl and her family, and my plate was kind of dirty, but I was like, well, here, she can use my plate. And he's like, no, we'll get a new plate. And I was like, oh, sorry. Like, I was just trying to be nice. Or the one time I was with my friend, we were walking through a mall, and um, there was a food court back when food courts were a thing, and... Uh, like, you know, there's like these row of fries ready to go. And I went to just grab a fry out of the thing, not thinking anything about it. And his dad goes, that's stealing. Oh, I was going to eat a fry. I didn't know it was stealing. Like, I never forgot it. I was seven years old. I was in second grade. Like, I've never forgot that. So one of the things that stand out, like, that's a true, it was stealing. It was a true statement. But, but I think sometimes we wrestle with, um, with this. We can have legitimate doubts. That's fair. But sometimes we struggle to believe something might be true because it would cause us to reorient our life. What we think we know about life would no longer be true. And so what happens is there's this combination of fear, but what could be, and doubt. And so fear and doubt put us in this weird place. Like, I'm afraid if that's true, what it will mean that I'll have to change or I'll have to believe differently or think differently. And I have doubt that they're even right. Like, they're probably not even telling the truth. Like, so sometimes fear and doubt are not a bad thing. But other times, fear and doubt are crippling. By the way, this is a side note. Like, I literally wrote in my notes, side note, because I wanted to share this. Um, I think in relationships, we get in trouble a lot. Because we don't assume trust, we assume suspicion. And so fear and doubt come into our relationships and destroy us. But for us to have healthy relationships in any relationship, we need to learn to assume trust, not suspicion. Now, in fairness, there are times when trust can be lost and suspicion is real, but we want to work back to the place of assume trust, not suspicion. 
It's a way healthier place to live, even with our coworkers, our friends, our spouses, wherever we are. That's a better way to live. And you'll find that you'll have healthier relationships when you live into that. Because if you don't, you'll destroy the relationship with fear and doubt. Okay, that wasn't really, that's a, like I said, side note. I'll go back to what we're actually talking about today. But fear and doubt, ironically, are fitting today as the week after Easter. And you're like, yeah, well, we just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And like, he came back to life and it weird story. I get it. Like, I've never seen it happen in my life. But this fear and doubt are fitting as we look at today's text. And John records this little scene after last week we read from John chapter 20, the first 18 verses. And today we're reading the rest of the chapter. Because it's fitting that this story is probably where we find ourselves. They've received the news, Jesus has risen from the dead, we think. He's not there anymore. We think he's risen from the dead. Mary told us she saw him, but we're not 100% sure, so that's kind of where we find ourselves today, and that's where the disciples were as we read these words. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. All right, I'm going to stop. Side note. Notice he doesn't say feet. Most scholars don't think his feet actually were pierced. They were sitting on top of some, that's a whole side note, sorry. Um, The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Here's what I picture He is risen! Okay, can you shut the door and lock it, please? That's great. Shut the door and lock it. That's the scene. Cool. I'm still scared. Shut the door and lock it. Most believe the disciples are in the upper room where they took the Last Supper together, and they're afraid. They don't know what to do. They're scared. They find themselves in this position, and they're not sure really what's next. And so... This becomes the question, like, is the Sanhedrin going to show up and kill us? Is that what's going to happen? Are we next? What is it? And then Jesus shows up, and he speaks peace. 
And he says these words, peace be with you. Right? And the best way we can translate that is this, may God give you every good See, we think of peace as just the absence of violence, but that's not the kind of peace even Jesus is talking about here. It includes that, but it's more than that. It's may God give you every good thing. May you sense that God's peace permeates your mind, body, heart, and soul, that the essence of who you are is wrapped up in God's peace. And then whatever happens around you doesn't matter. This is the kind of peace he's inviting us to. And then he says these words, Receive the Holy Spirit. And the Greek there that says breathed on them. Right, you're like, okay, well, breathed on them, receive the Holy Spirit. Right, what, what do we do with that? Well, here's what might be helpful for us. Um, this Greek word is only used one other time. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It's used one other time in the Greek translation of the Bible intentionally. And it's from Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God spoke these words. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. What Jesus is doing in this moment, we so often miss because we rush through the story, because we're excited that he's resurrected and he's come back. But what he does here is this John's clear implication is this is a moment of recreation and rebirth. It's, it's as if God is offering new life as he gave life in the beginning. I'd say it this way. Jesus is inaugurating the new creation with his resurrection. These guys were afraid. I knew he rose from the dead, but what does that mean for us? What does that do for me? What does that do for us? Like, we're still scared. We still know what's coming. And he comes and says, let me give you new life. Let me do something for you. Let me breathe on you this new life. And once you have received this new life, you have a unique call. This is the challenge for us. That for many of us, we think we're Christians, and so we're going to avoid people. All right, go read um, 1 Corinthians 5. You can't, like, avoid people. That's not what God calls us to. It's a really good passage about what Paul says. Hey, because um, he's telling Christians, those people who are sexually immoral among the church, um, avoid them. And he's like, but be clear here. I'm not talking about the whole world because then you'd talk to no one. Good point, right? Like, that's not, the, not what his goal is here. So it's not that we're called to be separate and live in, like, holy huddles. That's a bad image of the church. And we're going to... We're going to tell the whole world they're wrong. That's not even what Paul teaches, nor Jesus. Like, that's not the call of Christians. The call of Christians is to be holy as he is holy. To hold one another accountable. But, like, unless someone claims to follow Jesus, we kind of, kind of give them a pass. It's not our job in that way. That's, that's what God does. But this moment of new life, new breath, what do I do when I've received this new life? What do I do? Jesus gives these words, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Oh, you mean like people who are called into ministry, like who work at churches, or what, like that's who gets to go? No. Everyone who says they follow Jesus. Period. Right, but like you actually get a paycheck to do this? So do you. You just didn't know that was what it was for. 
This is what God says here. As I am sent, so I am sending you. You're called to go. You, all of you, if you've received my new life, you're called to tell people about this new life. And what are we sent to do? Here, I'll make it simple for you. To share the good news that God's kingdom has come. That Jesus conquered death itself. And there is an invitation for new life for all That's the good news. Do you share the good news that God's kingdom's come? That's the news Jesus came to share. Do you share that, that there is a new way of life that doesn't even make sense in the world we live? Um, now, there's this kind of weird line next. It says, if you forgive someone's sins, they're forgiven. It's like this weird text for like, what's this even mean? I thought God forgave. I'm so confused. Well, I want to be clear. Um, it is only God who forgives. It's not, no, no scholar believes that's literal how we're supposed to understand that. Not one. I couldn't find any this week as I was researching. No one says, yep, you get to be the one that forgives. That's how that works. What I found a lot of people saying is this. It's a privilege of the church to share the message of forgiveness. Take it seriously. And I'd say this way. It's, it's the reality of the church's message is this. that like We want to tell you that if your heart is right when you ask for forgiveness... God forgives. And so, yes, you tell people, did you go to God with the right heart? Did you approach with penitence and the idea that you want to be forgiven and you know you're wrong and you don't want to live that way anymore? Then we're supposed to say, yes, you are forgiven. The flip side of that, and this is the challenge for us, is that a lot of times we've bought into, especially, like, I hate to say this, but especially the church in the West, we bought into, like, cheap grace. Oh, God's just so forgiving, like, I'll ask for forgiveness. I won't plan to change my life at all. I'll ask for forgiveness so I can do the same thing again, and God will just forgive me. That's where the church goes, no, he won't. Because your heart isn't really about forgiveness. It's just you want to get a get-out-of-jail-free card. We're not playing Monopoly. If your heart's right, God forgives you because that's who he is. But if you really just want to be able to do the same thing again and again, um, I was talking to some young 20-somethings about a problem within the last year, and um, I was giving a text message thread, and one of the things in the thread said this, um, our God's just forgiving. They've done some dumb stuff. Weren't really planning to repent or change, but they're just doing dumb stuff. and going to keep doing dumb stuff. But it's great news about God. He's forgiving. Yeah, if your heart's right. He is incredibly forgiving. But do you actually want to be forgiven? Because this forgiveness says, I don't want to live this way. You're like, well, what if I stumble again? Okay, that's different than going, I'm probably going to do this again. That's not what, what Jesus is trying to get across here. And so that's what the disciples were called to say. Hey, invite people to a life of forgiveness, but make sure they approach it with the right heart. In other words, we don't get to forgive someone's sins. But we can help them see clearly that God wants them to be forgiven. how they go about that. And then Thomas shows back up. And Thomas gets a bad rap because like, he wasn't the only one who didn't believe, by the way. They said lock the doors. It was all of them. They all didn't believe. He just didn't happen to be there. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing for us to talk about. How often do we, when things go wrong in our life or something bad happens, we retreat into ourselves? We're going to go do it alone? Like, this is an image of what happens when that, we do that in our lives. That's not where we find freedom. 
in those places of solitary confinement, we find isolation and depression and anxiety. Those things increase in our life when we try to go it alone. We're invited into community of faith. And so I know this year has been really, really hard for all of us. This challenge of like, well, I feel like I'm doing life alone in some ways. And so for some people, I've had lots of conversation about their spiritual life. has felt like it's been stagnant or even declined in ways that aren't healthy. Find an avenue to lean in and allow God to still shape us and allow others to come alongside you in the midst of a pandemic is still the call. We have these things called cell phones and Zoom and FaceTime. Lots of stuff. I didn't know, I didn't know what Zoom was before last year, right? But those are vital tools that you and I get to use as opportunities. So even if we find ourselves vulnerable health-wise, we can still be in contact with other people. Don't allow any of this to shape us in ways that are unhealthy. And Thomas did that. Now, maybe Thomas was just pessimistic. I like that idea as well. Like, he's like a pessimist. Oh, kind of like Eeyore, right? Like just, mm, life stinks. So anyway, I, I was reading a little bit about um, pessimism this week from Psychology Today, and here's what, um, just a brief, brief thought from that. Here's what pessimists think. The glass is half empty, and storm clouds loom overhead, never with a silver lining. Pessimists get a lot of flack for their inclination toward negativity and their tendency to expect the worst in most situations. Besides taking a toll on their mental health, their physical health may take a beating too. Pessimism, while it may be useful in isolation or in moderation, is associated with anxiety, depression, sleep disorders, hostility, high blood pressure, and heart disease. Maybe that's why he wasn't with the other disciples. He was pessimistic. I don't know if Jesus came back. I'm out. I mean, he was overwhelmed and chose loneliness in the moment when he needed the others, and they maybe even needed him. Um, I, I like what the author of that same article adds to this. He says this, having realistic expectations rather than taking extremely positive or negative positions may actually be the recipe for good health and happiness. Perhaps, not surprisingly, low levels of pessimism rather than high levels of optimism have actually been associated with better health. In other words, pessimism may be a risk factor for heart disease and other physical and mental health conditions, but optimism won't necessarily prevent you from becoming ill. Rather than constantly aiming for a bright smile and sunny disposition or giving in to an overall negative outlook, the goal should be moderate optimism with a daily dose of pessimism. In other words, doubt's kind of normal. Um, but if we're defined by this, that we think that we're just missing a better life, we're probably in trouble. Now, maybe Thomas was pessimistic in an unhealthy way. That's very possible. But if we were to go back in this, to chapter 11, verse 16, Thomas is the one who said, well, let's go die with him. Maybe that wasn't even pessimistic. Maybe it was realistic. Maybe his doubt was like you and I. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody that's risen from the dead. Maybe he was just a realist. Like, I haven't seen this guy. I'm sorry, I'm not taking your word for it. This doesn't happen. People don't rise from the dead. It's not real. 
faith and obedience were not easy for Thomas. You get it, don't you? I mean, don't you understand that? I mean, see, I, I think having doubt is pretty normal, actually. One of the things that we sometimes have made difficult people is if they wrestle and they doubt, we go, oh, you just don't have enough faith. Just have more faith. Don't doubt. These dudes lived with Jesus and they had doubts. They didn't get it. But here's the reality for all of us. See, all of us have to find a way in which we perceive and navigate the world. We all do it. And if we don't have something that's foundational, we've, we struggle big time. We don't have like social institutions or structures that we find ourselves grabbing towards. We struggle and don't know what to do. In fact, um, it's why religions in general exist. They're ways for us to perceive and navigate the world, and we need something that makes sense of the world. You ever met someone who has no sense of how the world operates? They struggle. In fact, some of them are incredibly, incredibly brilliant. So I try to listen to a couple podcasts by a few different atheist guys, and they argue for their viewpoints. And I, I do it on purpose because I want to understand the way people think. So I was listening to one last night on the way home from, from Katie's grandmother's funeral, and, and, and I was listening to this conversation uh, between the atheist Tim Ferriss and a guy named Jordan Peterson. And, and Jordan Peterson's arguing, not necessarily as a Christian, but arguing that that there's deep spiritual things that exist in the world and religion matters and it has place and these things matter. And so what I, I want to scream at one level is, I get it. It's normal. If you think, if you're going to have a conversation, I, so I've got a cousin. I hope he's not listening today. If he is, I love you. Um, about three years ago, he would have called himself an atheist, at best an agnostic. And he grew up in the church. But what I've loved is over these last three years, he's continued to wrestle because I, I think sometimes people get bad rap when they're young or when they're intelligent. Like, he's super smart. Like, off the charts smart. And so he wrestles because he's like, it's got to make cognitive sense. Just this idea that I'm just going to believe in something and I'm all in. Like, that's dumb. Those people are called idiots, right? He's like, I don't get it. Like, like I need to wrestle this and make sense of the world. And so he began this journey where he has read and listened and wrestled. And so we've had some fun conversation and one of the things I've respected about my aunt and uncle the most in that season has been they haven't tried to force him to believe. They've just let him go. Keep trying to bring him back and keep offering a foundation and keep living their life and modeling what servant, servanthood looks like and generosity. And they just live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And today I would say he would call himself a follower of Jesus because he, he talks about like you have to navigate the world. It has to make some sense. And at the end of the day, he, you know, he's, he's tired of the hip, hip, hypocritical Christianity he sees too often. But man, like, you think his faith's not going to be greater because he allowed his doubts to exist and wrestled with them than if we just push away doubt? His faith's going to be stronger than ours if we just push away doubt. Oh, I can't have doubt. That's not what Jesus says. But what he says, listen, let me into the midst of your doubt and your wrestling. See, Thomas encounters Jesus in a way that changes who he is. And when he sees him, he says, my Lord and my God. Like, I'm all in. 
So two things I think we learn from Thomas in this story. One, doubt is okay. Two, when you're in, be all in. Both of those are pivotal for us in the story. This is what the invitation is for us. Jesus speaks of a peace that we're invited into to know. In fact, when Jesus says, my peace I give you, may God bless you. You know the story of the apostles, right? If you don't, I'll just tell you roughly, um, 11 of the 12 were martyred for their faith. They were killed for their faith. One of them died stranded on an island as an old man. 11 of the 12 were killed because they believe in Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm going to bless you and life is going to be amazing. You're going to have all the wealth you want. He does say, I'm going to bless you. Like, God's best for you, what you'll find. And they, I, I, I wish I could interview them all now. Like, I can't do that. That's not how that works. That's kind of weird. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But, but I, I tend to believe every one of them would say, it's worth it. It's worth it. I've heard the story of the early church father, Polycarp. Um, he was brought into the Colosseum, and he was executed, burned stake. And as he was being killed, he's talking about, Father, don't forgive them, right? Like, sounds like Stephen again, or Jesus. And he said, may I be a sacrifice acceptable to you, O Lord. Right? Like, it's worth it. Have you found that kind of life? Have you found a kind of life that's worth giving your life to? It's, it's why he doesn't say, like, ah, oh, It's going to be perfect. But he says, for many, they'll be blessed when they don't see me, which is you and I, by the way. I've never seen him. See, I think these words are helpful. True peace, in the midst of turmoil, comes by believing Jesus really is making all things new. Especially when we can't see it. Do you believe God's making all things new? I mean, Mary said, I've seen this guy. I've seen him, guys, and they still huddled in fear. See, they didn't believe God could accomplish what they couldn't imagine. You ever find yourself there? You can't believe God could do something because it's beyond your imagination. God can't work that way because that just doesn't make sense in the world. God can't bring about his kingdom through death on a cross and resurrection and new life because that's not how empires work. Empires have armies. They kill people. That's what empires do. And God says, not my kingdom. Watch how my kingdom's going to come. It requires this imagination beyond belief even beyond our doubt. Is it not possible that there's a realm that exists beyond our imagination? Something in our very souls, like our conscience, we don't understand our conscience, but what if that's God's work in our life? What if, like we, we kind of talk about, sometimes people talk about moralistic behavior, right? Um, there are people that are humanists who believe that there's a way that humans are called to live and we live in this particular way and, and that kind of moral understanding of the world exists because um, it's just how we're created, but yet, um, but what gives us that perspective? What makes us say, well, that's immoral. Like, we think murder's wrong. But why? 
if I'm a humanist, it really is like, well, I just could value humans. But why do you value humans? What, what in you makes you think I value people? What if there's some divine spark, some, something of God in each of us that says, there's a better way to live? You were created for more than this. What if this is ultimately what Jesus wants us to understand? There's an invitation to a way of life that makes sense even when it doesn't make sense. But here's the great thing about God. He welcomes your doubt and your pessimism because he loves you. And here's why John wrote all these words, these two verses. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples are not recorded in this book because I'd have to write too much. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus welcomes your doubts. And he still wants to give you an eye peace. But what might happen if we wrestled? What, what I, truth is, I think all of us should probably have a little del- healthy dose of pessimism. We shouldn't be pessimistic, but we should have a healthy dose of pessimism and optimism because as Christians, we are prisoners of hope. We're not pessimistic or optimistic. We're hope-filled. There is a difference between those. And so what if it's possible for us, just like Thomas and like the other disciples, to move from doubt to life? What if it's possible to move from death to resurrection? What if this image of Jesus is for us? And so what if that is the challenge for you and I? What if, it's, what if there's a truth that we think we perceive, but there's an actually greater truth that's probably beyond our full understanding? And that's the truth that we're invited into. And that's where we'll find new life. And that's where we'll find images of the divine. And that's where we'll find Jesus. And what if, just like he breathed on them, the Holy Spirit, he wants to breathe on us new life as well. And so what if today? What if today was a day that God breathed on you new life? What if today was a day you said, I really want to be forgiven? And as the church, we say, then come with the right heart and he forgives you and he wants you to find his new life what if what if today as we prepare to take communion together what if in those moments that becomes for us the way we recognize God comes to us and says I welcome your doubt and your fear I welcome your pessimism and your optimism but come to know my love and my life in a way that gives you hope and new life and so in just a few moments we'll take Take communion together as a way of accepting God's grace and forgiveness and his love and his new life he invites us into. And so maybe you just are having some doubts today. Like, know that you're not alone. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pray, and then we're going to sing a song together, and then we'll take communion. And while we're singing the song, um, as always, the altar is open if you want to come and pray. But also, if you didn't grab stuff for communion, it's at the doors as you came in. And so you can sneak back and grab that as well. But will you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you today. And we recognize your love and your grace and your mercy. We recognize how you desire for us to be your unique people. How there's something unique you have done through your son that offers us hope in the midst of doubt. That maybe Thomas was just a realist. 
But also when he encountered you, his life was radically changed. And so may we be a people who, once we have encountered you, our lives have radically changed. And so, Father, help us to know that you welcome our doubt and our questioning and our wrestling. But may we also be the kind of people that when we're in, we are all in, and you are first above all things. And so, Father, help us to become the unique people of God that you're calling us to be. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.